I'm Rasa Kay. I'm talking to Dr. Richard Kovach. He is Director of Interventional Cardiology at Deborah Heart and Lung Center in Burlington County. We are revisiting TAFR at Deborah Transaortic Valve Replacement. So as a review, what cardiac issue does TAVR address? TAVR at this point in time is addressing primarily the condition called aortic stenosis or stiffening and calcification of the aortic valve. The aortic valve is the valve that separates the left ventricle, which is the main pumping chamber of the heart, from the aorta, which is the main blood vessel in the body. In patients, particularly elderly patients, over time that valve can become very calcified and stiff and obstruct the normal flow of blood out to the body. What are the signs and symptoms to somebody suffering from aortic stenosis? One is chest pain, which can often mimic anginal heart pain, like uh, when patients have blockages in the arteries that feed the heart muscle. Passing out, or syncope is the medical term for that, or the development of shortness of breath, which typically reflects decline in the function of the heart muscle and development of heart failure. The treatment options then for aortic stenosis? Typically, we'll intervene in aortic stenosis when the valve becomes so severely narrowed that it really uh, interferes with the patient's ability to function and lead a normal life. Most often, that's when the valve area is less than 0.7 or 0.8 centimeters squared. But there are other factors that also play into when the uh, valve is replaced, certainly whether or not the heart muscle is developing failure, how severely symptomatic the patient may or may not be. So we don't necessarily go by 100% by the area of the valve. Other factors include how well, the, as I mentioned, the heart muscles squeezing something, the medical term for it is called the stroke volume index. There's also, we measure the degree of calcification of the uh, aortic valve itself. Other factors like the shortness of breath or the combination of that with chest pain and passing out. It used to be the rule of thumb, at least when we were uh, uh, talking about surgical aortic valve replacement, was 5, 3, and 1. Chest pain, syncope, passing out, and shortness of breath. That was your survival left untreated. Once you start to move towards heart failure, shortness of breath with uh, exertion, etc., the heart muscle weakening, that's when uh, survival really starts to become uh, an issue. The problem with aortic stenosis is that it's really a mechanical problem. This is not something that can be cured with medicines. You know, we can give medications to get rid of excess fluid, things to make the patient feel symptomatically a little bit better, but like a, a clogged drain, there's no medicine that's going to break up the calcium on the valve and make it function like a new valve again. It's a mechanical obstruction that needs to be addressed. Before TAVR, and even I guess alongside TAVR, because TAVR is not the only intervention, how is this mechanical issue corrected? Well, when a patient has severe enough aortic stenosis that it does need to be corrected, there are two options. One is surgical option, that's open heart surgery with replacement either by a mechanical valve or a tissue valve or the TAVR procedure, which is a catheter-based procedure typically done through a puncture in the groin, just like a heart catheterization, and that's done with a, a tissue valve. Now, when TAVR was first introduced, it was really primarily indicated for patients who were at far too high risk to have open-heart surgery, very, very elderly, multiple other medical problems, medical comorbidities. But as the devices have improved as the ease of the procedure has improved, 
there has been a change in the indications for aortic valve replacement via TAVR. It's moved on such that now patients who are considered at moderate risk for open-heart surgery can have their valves done via the TAVR procedure that's been approved by the FDA. And I would foresee that in the not-too-distant future that patients who are at low risk for open-heart surgery will have the options to have their uh, valve replaced via the TAVR procedure. In fact, typically speaking, uh, Europe is always ahead of us in this game. They were doing moderate-risk patients long before we were here in the U.S., and they're already doing low-risk patients in Europe because it's um, you know, become almost the standard of care as opposed to open surgical repair. Now, there are situations, you know, we don't want to get into too much detail here, where open surgical repair is the better option. Surgical repair or replacement of the valve is still a very, very good option, particularly in younger patients. You know, one of the issues with any tissue valve is that there's a chance that over time that tissue valve will stiffen up just like the native valve that the patient had. So if you're talking about a 40 or 50-year-old patient that has developed aortic stenosis for one reason or another, it's probably better to put a mechanical valve in those uh, patients. The downside of a mechanical valve is that you need to be on long-term anticoagulation, drugs like warfarin. The upside is that properly taken care of, a mechanical valve can last the patient the rest of their life. The reason we don't like to put a tissue valve, per se, in a younger patient is that if the patient gets 10 or 15 years uh, out of that valve and they're only 50 to start with, there's a good chance that they may need a second valve procedure somewhere down the line. Whereas if you're talking about a more elderly patient where 10, 15 years of uh, improvement of their life and their quality of their life is adequate. In an elderly person who may have multiple comorbidities, placing them at risk for being on long-term anticoagulation, prior stroke, issues with GI bleeding, risks, uh, gait instability, falls risks, that sort of thing. It's going to be a little bit more dicey to put in a mechanical valve and risk uh, requiring that patient to be on long-term anticoagulation. In those patients, not only are we talking about more risk, realistic approach to longevity, where uh, in a, if we put a valve that's going to last 10 or 15 years in someone who's 80 years old, that's a more realistic proposal as opposed to putting a valve that may last 10 or 15 years in someone who's 50 years old who may live another 30 or 40 years. Now, when you're talking about a mechanical valve, that's that's with an open chest procedure, though, correct? Uh, yeah, putting in a uh, mechanical valve is typically uh, an open surgical procedure. The reason we can uh, put in a tissue valve through a catheter-based procedure is because that valve can be essentially collapsed down uh, to a very small size, uh, put inside a catheter that we deliver through a, a puncture in the groin uh, or one of the other major arteries that we uh, can have access to. A mechanical valve, as you might imagine, is not something that can be compressed into a very small size, so that it has to be put in through an open surgical procedure. Here's the thing. TAVR is a catheter-based procedure. The downtime is much less. The recovery time is much less. All of the issues that are involved with an open chest type of procedure are not there. So if you've got somebody who is 45 or so and, and they need a new valve, well, if the catheter procedure needs to be redone in 15 years, it's not as dramatic as having to have the chest reopened. 
No, it's not as dramatic as having to have the uh, chest reopened uh, again. So, you know, there's debate along those lines because we do, even now, patients who have had a, a surgical tissue valve a number of years ago that's stiffened up, we can do what's called a valve and valve procedure where we actually put a TAVR valve inside the old tissue valve. So, yes, the, uh, the valve uh, procedure uh, can be repeated. There are also other medical conditions that even in young patient where we might want to consider a TAVR uh, valve procedure over an open surgical procedure. For instance, somebody who's had radiation to their chest uh, where they're going to have difficulty healing uh, an open wound. Uh, they have uh, very bad lung disease. Perhaps they're a heavy smoker where uh, putting that patient under general anesthesia would be a significant risk, uh, you know, trying to get them off the ventilator for after gener- general anesthesia, after the procedure. So, again, there are a number of conditions that even in a younger uh, patient where doing a uh, what's called a percutaneous, meaning through a puncture uh, procedure, would be the better option than an open surgical procedure. So TAVR became approved for moderate risk. Did this significantly increase the pool of, of patients who can now receive a TAVR procedure to fix that uh, that valve? Or, I mean, are we talking doubling the group or tripling? Since the approval of moderate risk candidates for the TAVR procedure, we've seen a little bit of an increase, but not as much, I think, as everyone expected. I think in many ways in the U.S., physicians in general tend to be a lot more conservative. So there's, I think, been a little bit of uh, hesitancy or uh, reluctance to really jump on the bandwagon and start referring everybody who's uh, moderate risk for TAVR-based procedure. Also, don't forget that many of these patients don't have aortic stenosis isolated by itself. A fair number of patients will also have coronary artery disease, blockages in the heart arteries, and may need bypass surgery because they have several blockages. In that case, those patients are going to get one surgical procedure where they replace the valve and do the bypasses at the same time. In general, we expected it to to be a big bump, but uh, not nearly as much as we uh, initially anticipated. Is TAVR still as exciting a technology and procedure to you as it was when you first started doing it? TAVR is still as exciting a procedure and technology as when we first started doing it. Initially, when it was released, it was really only for the highest risk patients who really had no other option. It's still very exciting because of that, because our population is aging significantly. And, you know, we always hear the term, oh, so-and-so is a good 80-year-old patient. But, you know, when we're 80 years old or 90 years old, we're still much more frail. It's very much more difficult for us to recover from any type of open surgical procedure. So the ability to offer patients a procedure that's going to improve their health, improve their quality of life is still very, very exciting. The procedure, because the technology itself is still evolving, you know, the valves that we are putting in now are much more easily uh, implantable than the the valves that we initially uh, started to put in. So that evolution technology has made the procedure easier and easier, going through smaller and smaller catheters. When we first started doing this procedure, there were patients who still might stay in the hospital for four or five days after the procedure. These days, most patients, uh, because of the smaller puncture and because it's become even less of a dramatic procedure uh, than it was uh, initially, are getting out of bed much more quickly, typically later the same day or early the next day. Uh, They're ambulating sooner. They're typically going home in one or two days. 
There are places in Europe, as I said uh, before, Europe tends, tends to be a little bit more aggressive and a little bit more ahead of the curve on things like this than, than we are. There are patients who are actually going home the same day after the, uh, the procedure. So in terms of downtime, ability to get back to, um, to work, to activities of normal daily living without having to deal with uh, a large surgical incision, it's still uh, an exciting technology. And again, because it's a tissue valve, we're somewhat concerned about the longevity uh, of the valve if it's a young patient where the valve might stiffen up in 10 or 15 years. But again, Number one, as I mentioned, we can repeat the procedure. But number two, that technology is improving as well. So I can foresee in the very near future where we'll have uh, catheter-based valves that will be able to last the patient for the the rest of their life. As with so many technologies in medicine, uh, the uh, rate of advancement of technology is just so fast that what's news today is old news six months from now. So there's uh, always something new and better coming down the pike. And the same holds true with the catheter-based valves. So with the FDA's more inclusive criteria for patient eligibility, here at Deborah, you have developed an entire TAVR team. How has that changed how you approach this? The places that are most successful in having a TAVR program are places that have a team-based approach we have what's, what's called a valve coordinator, which is an advanced practice nurse who sort of runs the team. When patients come in to be evaluated for a TAVR replacement, the day or two that they spend prior to the actual procedure, which may precede the procedure by several weeks, is a little bit like boot camp. Uh, there's a number of tests that need to be performed to make sure that the patient is actually eligible for the uh, procedure. Not infrequently, we look at the arteries in the neck to make sure that the patient's not at risk for stroke, the carotid arteries we'll look at. Uh, we'll need to do a, a CAT scan of the chest. Sometimes these patients will need a catheterization or cornea angioplasty prior to the procedure. We get a CAT scan of the abdomen and pelvis to look at the blood vessels in the pelvis and the groin. Patient is evaluated by a team of uh, physicians, including cardiothoracic surgeon as well as an interventional cardiologist and a non-invasive cardiologist. You know, because this is a big decision and because there's many options that these patients have in terms of how and when to replace the valve, whether it's a tissue valve, whether it's a surgical, whether it's a mechanical valve. The bottom line is we want to do what's best for the patient. We want to discuss it as a team, not just a knee-jerk reaction, oh, let's just drop in a a TAVR valve for this patient. We want to make sure that, uh, number one, they're an appropriate candidate and it's it's the best choice for that patient. And also because there's a fair amount of legwork that needs to be done before the procedure, having the team and a coordinator that coordinates all the testing and the consults and the exams and everything beforehand is extremely uh, important to make that an efficient process rather than, uh, uh, you know, kind of haphazardly doing it. Oh, yeah, I got to order this. Oh, yeah, I got to order this. Maybe I can see if they can get this test done today. It's all done in a very systematic fashion, which is more efficient for the patient and overall much more painless in terms of time lost and running back and forth to the hospital, et cetera, when it's done uh, through a team approach like that. So does the valve coordinator, which sounds to me like somebody who could also be working at Pep Boys, (laughs) I just love the title, does this, this person make sure that everybody on the team sees the patient then? I mean, you all get to become acquainted with every individual case. The valve coordinator makes sure that all the appropriate diagnostic uh, testing that's necessary to go uh, before moving ahead with the procedure is done before the procedure. 
then we meet on a weekly basis as the Taver team. The whole team sits down and evaluates every case. We decide to move ahead if there's a consensus that it's the appropriate thing to do. It doesn't necessarily mean that 100% of the people on the team uh, agree because uh, there's very, very little in medicine that's purely black and white. There's always a difference of opinion. If somebody has a huge, you know, strong objection, we're going to address that objection. If someone feels that more testing needs to be done or a different test that uh, hasn't been considered before needs to be done, absolutely we'll, we'll address that. Because it, this is a disease state, and as I said, like most things in medicine, it's not cut and dried, it's not black and white, it's important to, to hear varying opinions. In the end, I think it results in us consistently doing what's best for the patient. On that team, we'll have a non-invasive, one or two non-invasive cardiologists, the folks who do the echocardiograms. We'll have uh, one or two cardiothoracic surgeons, usually at least two interventional cardiologists. We have anesthesia there at the meeting because the majority of these patients now will do with just what's called heavy monitored sedation, where the patients really are deeply sedated but not put on a ventilator. It's important to have anesthesia there during the case because they may identify problems with anesthesia or problems with the, the patient's ventilatory status that may lead us to say, well, maybe this patient should be done with general anesthesia as opposed to heavy sedation or conscious sedation, even though most of the time we don't put the patients on a ventilator. We have the nurses and technicians that are in the room doing the procedure with us. We'll typically have, depending on which valve we're going to use, there's uh, several different uh, companies that produce the TAVR valves. We'll typically have one of the representatives from that company in the meeting as well to get their input so that we have hopefully covered all the variables and discussed all the potential issues that may possibly occur during that case so that when we're in the case, there are no surprises. The case runs very, very, very smoothly. And over time, as a result of that team working, working very closely together and anticipating each other's moves, you know, when we initially started doing TAVR, these procedures took a fair amount of time. Typical TAVR procedure now, you know, once we make the initial puncture to when we're holding pressure on the groin to stop the bleeding. It's typically 30, 35, 40 minutes. It's become a very quick procedure. How quickly do you recognize and does the patient recognize a successful outcome? Well, because it's uh, relieving a mechanical obstruction, once the patient's awake and alert after the procedure, the vast majority of the time they're going to feel an immediate improvement because suddenly that obstruction that their heart has been working so hard uh, to pump against is gone. Most patients feel an immediate improvement. You mentioned that a representative of a company that provides the valves is at the meetings. I would think that it would be in the interest of that company that this representative push their product. What is the background of of this kind of a representative? And is it ever a situation where they say, you know what, our products is not right for this case? Yeah, the representative from the company is not a salesperson. They're what's called a clinical specialist. They're extremely well-trained, know the mechanics of their valve and the limits of their valve inside and out. Because they service typically multiple hospitals, they not only see our team operating, but they see other teams operating. And they can actually be an extremely valuable resource you know, Dr. So-and-so at Hospital XYZ encountered the same problem, and this is how they dealt with that problem. 
or we've seen this issue before and this is the way we've seen other institutions uh, deal with this problem. Because, again, as so many things in medicine, it's a constant learning process. The best physicians never stop learning, and the best physicians never stop learning from each other. The representatives, again, these are not salespeople. They're clinical specialists who can be a uh, very, very valuable source because of their own experience as well as uh, observing the experience of, of other physicians. Not infrequently, they'll say, the best ones will say, no, this is not, you shouldn't use our valve, you should use the other company's valve because it's going to work better in this situation. And they're not in the business of, of encouraging something that they expect could lead to a poor outcome. That doesn't reflect well on their product either, I guess. Absolutely. They, too, want to see uh, the patients having the best result possible. The vast majority of clinical specialists that I've worked with, whether it's with valves or other devices, are going to be very honest about when they think it's appropriate to use a device and when it's not. So you've been around this Taver block now from the beginning, when it was recommended only for patients with critical aortic stenosis who were not good candidates for the open surgery procedure. And now it's available to a wider group. What's been surprising to you about Taver along the way? Anything kind of unexpected in terms of when you started doing this and you saw its potential? How has it played out for you? Any Anything that uh, has been unexpected? As the technology has improved, you know, even with the two main companies that we use, we're already through the third or fourth generations of, of valves, of Taver valves. What's been surprising to me is how quickly the technology has evolved and, uh, quite frankly, how easy the procedure has become. Think back to my original training and years and years ago, longer than I'd like to think about, and the only thing that we had was balloons to stretch the arteries open, the coronary arteries. And, you know, then we developed stents and atherectomy devices and now valves and we're fixing arteries in the neck and treating aneurysms and treating um, blockages in the legs. Uh, just the uh, rate at which the technology has been advancing is just sometimes almost breathtaking. The fact that what not so many years ago was a major procedure, open heart, ten days in, a week to 10 days in the hospital, you know, prolonged recovery time afterwards, up to six weeks, you know, waiting for the sternum to heal, has now become almost, in some ways, almost an outpatient procedure. I think that's the thing that's been most uh, astounding. And what's been really gratifying about that is how much easier it's become also on the patients and how many more patients that we can offer these types of treatments to uh, because of that, patients who in the past would say, well, gee whiz, there's not a whole lot that we can can do for you. Now we can uh, offer them so much more uh, so that they can enjoy a, a healthier, more satisfying life. So how can patients get evaluated at Deborah for TAVR? First of all, they can uh, be referred to Deborah through their family physician who may, or their cardiologist who may make the diagnosis of aortic stenosis. The easiest way is to go on the website, uh, demanddebora.org, and all the information will be there for how you can uh, make direct contact and schedule an appointment to be seen uh, by one of the uh, Deborah specialists. I'm Rasa Kay, and I've been talking with Dr. Richard Kovach. He's Director of Interventional Cardiology at Deborah Heart and Lung Center in Burlington County.